Hey, Phil. Hey. Welcome, listeners and Phil, to the last What We've Been Watching episode for a long time. That's the wrong kind of theme music to play. No, no, that's still wrong. It'll be more like, celebrate good times, come on! Yeah. No, but why would we be celebrating the last one? Because it's like the party that happens when, you know, someone leaves an office or when someone moves on to pastures new and starts a new chapter of their life. It's exciting and wonderful and filled with new ideas and promise and the future, Phil. Come on! Okay, so we're going that angle rather than the sad goodbye yes yeah <laughs> how can you be any doubt <laughs> listeners thanks so much for listening to all the last episodes we've really enjoyed doing what we've been watching it's actually been going on for a lot longer than this podcast has as listeners to the super belly bro show will know over a year easily uh but we're just taking a break from this extra one because two podcasts a week is too much for many people to do for a while it wasn't too much for the super belly bros because you know <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. But now it is, yeah. It is too much. Yeah, <laughs> now, yeah. now it is. I'm having another baby, which I'm super excited about. Um, I'm so excited. <laughs> I like how you put that in, because last week you were worried it, it wasn't. I was worried, because I was making a joke, but I was worried that it might not have come across as a joke, and more just misery, which but it is now isn't. you're putting I'm it in, just to be absolutely certain. Crystal clear. You're very excited about your new baby. Yeah, and that, that is one of the major reasons why I can't do this uh, going forwards, but other things as well. Anyway, we've got a special closing down sale show <laughs> for you this week. Well, Surely a celebration rather than a sale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Closing down, celebration. Well, I think we're kind of, rather than us each doing films, we're kind of sharing it all, aren't we? Because these are films which we absolutely love, and we just wanted to do them on what we've been watching as a last little hurrah. That's right. So, Filled with positivity and joy and things that we love and that have you know, built us up in all our filminess over the years. So, Laurie, what are the films that you've chosen on this very special episode? <laughs> How are we doing this? Because there are some sp- sort of special things as well. Shall I just do my two choices? Your two choices that we've confirmed we're, we're individually yes, yeah, yeah. doing. Yes, gotcha, gotcha. So, we I am going to that. cover Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, <laughs> in which they travel back in time to the 80s to rescue humpback whales. Imagine of course, that. Of course, of course, of course. And then also, I Spy, Eddie Murphy and Owen Wilson's spy comedy buddy thriller thing massively underrated in our opinion hugely underrated yes i'm going to be doing well a slightly more serious one but i i've always wanted to talk about it it's the social network Mm. aaron sorkin david fincher jesse eisenberg andrew garfield of course facebook and then also i'm going to be doing another film which i absolutely love a knight's tale heath ledger and that's it (laughs) (laughs) that's all you need to know really and we've chosen all these four because phil and i are both we love them all, so we're going to have things to say to each other. It's going to be a fun party atmosphere. I'm always tempted to play some party music, but I think that would ruin it. Well, we've got, in fact, the best party music, which is the what we've been watching jingle. Oh, right. Yeah, I, mean, I forgot that last week. I'll play that here, but we've got some more to say. So here's the jingle. Still doesn't really say party to me. Uh, what are the other things we're doing, Phil? We are going to do a very special feature on a film which is wonderfully, awfully brilliant. Yeah, that's quite a unique way of putting it, Phil. And it is, and I feel it's appropriate for this film, but I'm not going to say what it is here. We'll sa- save it for the end. And also, we thought a nice way to round it off would be going through all seven, or actually eight, all eight of the Harry Potter films and just saying a little bit on each one. Yeah, don't worry, not in loads and loads of detail. We're taking that whole series to task. And that's because we've had lots of correspondence recently about the third in the series, and we continually drop hints about our feelings on the rest of it. So we thought we'd round that off for you. And that would be the way to really say... Cut half an hour to what we've been watching. What we have in the past been watching. Yes. All right. Who's going to start? I really like the idea of starting with Star Trek 4. <laughs> do you think so? Yeah. That's definitely got the least listener appeal, I would imagine. Should we do that? Yeah. Let's do it. Star Trek 4, The Voyage Home. Avoid the planet Earth at all costs. We are under the attack of a 
Notify all stations. Starfleet emergency. Red alert. Earth is on the edge of destruction. We cannot survive unless a way can be found to respond to the probe. The key to saving the future. Spock, you're talking about the end of every life on Earth. Can be found only in the past. We're going to attempt time travel. Sulu, take us home. These are the voyages of the crew of the Starship Enterprise. Judging by the pollution content of the atmosphere, I believe we have arrived at the latter half of the 20th century. Stardate 1986. San Francisco. Our own world is waiting for us to save it. They have 24 hours. Everybody remember where we parked. Break up. To complete their mission. You look like a cadet review. We will beam into night, collect the photons, and beam out. I want you all to be very careful. Without being discovered. We have an intruder. All right, who are you? You're not exactly catching us at our best. That much is certain. This is an extremely primitive and paranoid culture. What does it mean, exact change? Many of their customs will doubtless take us by surprise. We're ready for beam out. My transporter power is down to minimal. I've got to bring you in one at a time. You're from outer space. No, I'm from Iowa. I only work in outer space. Let's do our job and get out of here. Freeze! Take off, can you hear me? Freeze! I've lost it. Who are you? You. you can't. Our next stop is the 23rd century. Full power now, sir. Shields at maximum. Steady. Hold on tight, lassie. Can we make breakaway speed? That's all I can give you. Book eight. I can tell you're already enjoying it, Phil. I love this movie. I love it. I know you love it as well. Well, listeners, I don't have a very good reason for loving it, in truth, because I have seen it since becoming an adult, and it didn't impress me in quite the same way, and I was ever so slightly cringy about it. And yet, I cannot separate it from the immense feelings of wonder and joy and thrill that I had when I was very young watching it for the first time. This is one our parents had videoed, on the old VHS stuff. It was the only Star Trek movie we've ever really owned as a, as a kid. Exactly. Yeah. And it's worse. Like, we're not sort of people who've grown up with Star Trek at all, other than watching The Next Generation, enjoying the uh, soft, soothing sounds of space travel. Captain <laughs> 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 Picard. Yes, exactly. Uh, we, we never really knew Star Trek, so this was all a bit of an odd experience for us. And that's worth saying at the beginning. Do you remember they have that montage of things from the three films that have gone before? Yeah, and it's because it was a TV version. I was, I really loved that little sequence. Yeah, I thought too. it was just part of the movie. But then when I actually got a DVD copy of this film, it just starts the movie. And I, I was know. like, where's the previously on Star Trek? And it's read by um, Captain Kirk, I think, isn't it? William Shatner. It is indeed. And it gives a, like, a really nice little summary of where the plot is, which is part of the reason why we were able to jump in. Well, that in particular really taps into something that makes this so special for me, which is that it's something that I think all novelists, uh, filmmakers, anyone creative storytellers, it's one of the biggest skills that they have. Uh, and often a good storyteller and a bad storyteller, it's this that tells them apart. It's exactly how much they don't need to say and yet maintain your sense of immersion and engagement. So 
that little tiny window of montage explaining three films worth of stuff that we had no clue what on earth was going on about the Genesis planet and Spock being reborn. Do you remember all that? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. When you're young, that literally just washes over you and you're like, what? Okay, yeah. <laughs> but you, exactly, that's that's more the response than the what. You just let it go and you think, oh yeah, right, that all happened and I bet and that was really important. And then suddenly Spock's there and he's not acting like himself. Yeah, exactly. And so, you, that's exactly right. And you have the amazing sequence where he is learning how to sort of do life and he chats to that computer he does the training program what is the da, 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 oh blah 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 get act remember <laughs> yeah I love if I can you always do that who said logic is the cement of our civilization with which we ascend from chaos using reason as our guide Chief Planahoff matron of Vulcan philosophy Correct. I love it if I can find the clip I'll put it there and it just it was so cool that I never felt I needed to understand what was going on I just enjoyed everything as it was put before me. And I mean, I was quite young. I think I was, well, I was, I'm younger than you, Laurie. And so when you were watching this film, I had no idea what was going yeah, on. Yeah, right. Suddenly there's like just people exploding in sort of this weird blue light. There's a kind of column that is causing all this trouble to uh, Earth, it seems. That's right, the and probe film. That's a bit of iconic design <laughs> right there. Isn't I think it like quite... weird sound effects everywhere? And you're like, as a kid, you're like, what is going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, I think it just represents the fact that it's quite well made. Like that probe is just a big long cylinder. A little tiny spinning brain-like globe comes out. Do you remember that? Mm. And starts emitting all these waves. Uh, spaceships start crashing. All their power gets lost while this probe is searching for something. Uh, and it emerges that what it's looking for... Should, is this a spoiler? No, surely it is Not isn't. at all. I think it's in the trailer we just okay. played. It's, it's humpback whales. This is a probe that's come from dark space and entered the known galaxy and is searching for the existence of humpback whales. And if the whales are there and can communicate back to it, it's like, oh, it's good, time to go off home. But if there are no whales, as it turns out there aren't in the future because evil mankind of the 1980s hunted them to extinction, then the probe is just going to continue to cause awful damage all around the world, all around the galaxy. So what else is there? But for the only people who apparently aren't on Earth (laughs) at that time, which is the crew of the Starship Enterprise to go back in time to find some whales. And in fact, they do it as a rogue mission, I think. I don't think they're allowed to do it, but they've commandeered the uh, Klingon warbird to That's fly right. around the sun. Well, and this is all part of the stuff that we didn't understand because they're in that Klingon warbird having dropped Spock off on Vulcan. And then um, Captain Kirk, they're having a sort of a big trial in his absence. Tribunal, on... isn't it? I love, again, I love that scene. It's a brilliant bit of sort of accidental world building because so much stuff happens that you're not clued into and yet you are aware that Kirk is in trouble, basically. And, and it, it all just works, in my, in my opinion. And I sort of believe it. It's kind of filled, you know, George Lucas, eat your heart out. When it comes to councils and senates and stuff, this film does it pretty well, I think. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I really do. It kind of stuck with me, even though it should be really boring to this the movie. Out. As long as Kirk lives, there will be no peace. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> anyway, listeners, I feel like we're doing a terrible job of this. I'm just so overcome by my <laughs> nostalgia. <laughs> love. Uh, but yeah, so anyway, they do that. They travel through time. They experience a hilarious, uh, in quotes, artistic montage. Do you remember that? When they do travel back in time of reeds blowing in the wind? I mean, isn't that a bit like... Um, 2001 A Space Oddity we were kind of attempting to be Space Odyssey Odyssey is the Bowie song but it's a bit more like Space Oddity actually <laughs> uh, but yes and then they arrive in the 1980s as you heard from that trailer and it's a hilarious 
ridiculous idea. Here is the Star Trek crew on planet Earth having to deal with guys playing their boombox on the bus. You were punks. Yeah, exactly right. And having to deal with change because there's no money in the future. They've evolved past it, of course. A Russian guy having to deal with the fact that he's in the middle of like the Cold War. Exactly right. That's such a brilliant under um, underappreciated scene. Chekhov having to go and steal photons, I think it is, from a nuclear reactor. Nuclear or Wessel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, of course, uh, you've got Gillian, who is played by Catherine Hicks, who I'm not really familiar with her later career. Incredibly 80s lady with that fantastic hair that I don't even know how to describe what it is. It sort is. of looks like moss. <laughs> yeah, but it suits her though, right? Yeah, like, yeah. As a kid, I would you know, obviously fancy hair because that's just <laughs> what you, you do. do. Yes, and you she, do. more than anything, she reminds me of April out of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because she wears that same sort of half jacket thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just blonde hair this time. And she kind of is entranced by Captain Kirk, of course. <laughs> Who wouldn't be? Can't resist William Shatner. Shatner. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and because they turn up at her aquarium centre asking about these whales and she's really suspicious, especially when Spock dives into the tank and communicates to the whales. Using his mind reading. It's a fantastic scene as well. Spock mind melding with a whale. <laughs> uh, and then she tracks them down, follows them, and then she kind of gets swept up in this big space plot as well. I think this film is incredibly joyful. And if you have any memory or nostalgia, fake BuzzFeed style nostalgia, or real nostalgia for an older period, I think you'll find something to enjoy in this movie because it is really, it's just a lot of fun. What I was kind of surprised by was that I was enjoying the fish out of water stuff that the film is obviously going for, but I wasn't, I wasn't around in the 80s. I have no idea what sort of things it's making fun of. And yet somehow it still kind of works for me, even though I'm not from that decade. I don't really understand all the like, little references and issues of the day or anything like that. The film is just massively concerned with having a good time. Well, exactly. And you don't need to know that, really, to appreciate the scenes they're in, because the storytelling is good. It explains the awkwardness and then makes, you know, makes it fun in the scene. You don't need to know all that background knowledge. And it's important to say this was a massive departure for the franchise, wasn't it? Yeah. They've done a, a series of, sort of quite, quite serious movies, uh, Wrath of Khan being the kind of critically acclaimed one and uh, a couple of other ones which haven't been too warmly received. And so this was seen as a massive sort of, uh, let's just give it a go, have a bit more lighthearted fun, which was massively successful, I believe. I think so, yeah. And, uh, you know, it wasn't underappreciated by the Academy at that time. Best Cinematography was nominated for, Best Sound, Best Original Score, which I absolutely it's agree great with. great music. It's, re- it's fantastic music. It's a very sort of emotional, heartstring, 80s-style stuff. Hey, the guy, uh, it's uh, Leonard Rosenman. I looked it up for a while because I was so entranced by it. Uh, and he was more of a TV guy. And I think you can tell it's got that sort of overly dramatic tone. But it works really, really well. And I also love some of the effects on display here. Star Wars rightly sort of dominates that period of cinema for effects uh, just because of, of the budget involved in the pioneering technology. But the stuff that they do here is pretty good as well. They, they make good use of miniatures and practical effects, one of which always stands out in my mind. And I think, Phil, you might be able to guess which one I'm thinking of. Is it in a, a bit park. when the... Yeah, the bit when an invisible ship crushes a trash can. Exactly right. As a child, it blew my mind completely and utterly away. <laughs> and then the ground sinks in. It sinks down, doesn't it? Yeah. In front of a couple of garbage can collectors who don't believe what they're seeing. And of course, no one you know cares about it the next day. But yeah, I, listeners, I think there is so much fun to be had. 
the cast are all on top form, all very well expressing their, you know, individual personalities in the crew and appearing to have real genuine charisma and and fun being in the scene with each other. I think uh, Dr. McCoy and Scotty's scenes where he shows off the formula for transparent aluminum, for example. And also when great. Bones, the doctor, goes to a hospital and says, oh, I can't yeah. believe you're doing this. That's fantastic. What a ridiculous comedy scene as well. <laughs> they're running down the hospital with, uh, who is it they're trying to rescue? Chekhov, isn't it? Of course. They're trying to rescue Chekhov, yeah. Oh, so many good moments. Yeah. And I want to say it's got one of the weirdest final scenes ever. Yes. With a rather portly William Shatner doing his best swimming underwater. Oh, that's fantastic. I used to hold my breath and try and, uh, you know, try and match him for its great capacity. I really do think it's marvellous, isn't it? You know, technically, we haven't said that much technically, but I, I think it's paced very well as well. I, you know, it's good direction from Leonard Nimoy. The stakes for everyone involved feel quite real, even though they, I don't think they had a huge budget for the time. Like, so Planet Earth back home, uh, which has this big power cut and everything's going wrong. You still feel like it's a real problem for people, even though you only really see the struggle in one location which is that control room basically but you remember the scene where the window breaks through because of the pressure of the wind yeah yeah, yeah. and, that, and it, even though it's a tiny little moment it's just nicely judged so i think everything is in line for this to be great fun emotionally convincing and just good old-fashioned 80s action yeah so there you go i've gone on and on but i love it what's the grade well, I mean, they, all these films are A categories for us, personally, aren't they? That's they the are problem. personal A's, yeah. But personal A's. I mean, I think you would struggle to give it more than a B in other categories, but for me, it's an A. Yeah. It's one of those films which, even if you're not a fan of Star Trek, pop it in, just give it a go. I'd be really fascinated, listeners, to know what you think. And we'll get your emails, so even if they're not able to be read out on what we've been watching, we'll read them out on uh, the Super Baby Bros show, won't we? We will. I think we should do, yeah. So, so do let us know if you watch this film. I'd love to know your thoughts. There we go. All right, that's me done, Phil. Thanks, Laurie. Because we've got some fun ones coming up, I think I'm going to do my more serious one. Okay. And do The Social Network. I need to do something substantial in order to get the attention of the clubs. Why? Because they're exclusive and fun, and they lead to a better life. People want to go on the internet and check out their friends, so why not build a website that offers that friends, pictures, profiles? I'm talking about taking the entire social experience of college and putting it online. The site got 2,200 hits within two hours. 22,000. This idea is potentially worth millions of dollars. Millions? You stole our website. They're saying we stole the Facebook. I know what it said. So did we. A million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? A billion dollars. You're going to get left behind. It's moving faster than any of us ever imagined. Get left behind. Let's sue him in federal court. I can't wait to stand over your shoulder and watch you write as a chef. You guys were the inventors of Facebook. Invented Facebook. Is there anything that you need to tell me? Your actions could have permanently destroyed everything I've been working on. We have been working on. Do you like being a joke? Do you want to go back to that? Mark! This is our time. You're being accused of intentionally breaching security, violating copyrights, violating individual privacy. Your best friend is suing you for $600 million. As for the charges... I believe I deserve some recognition from this board. I'm sorry? Yes. I don't understand. Which part? And how epic does that make a movie about Facebook sound? Yeah, no, they called it right. And it's almost prophetic because look at what, you know, Facebook is dominating the world right now. It is crazy. This film came out in 2010. It's directed by David Fincher who I have made it very clear I'm a big fan of. Yeah, you have. 
It's written by Aaron Sorkin, who I am always intrigued whenever he's behind a project. He's the guy behind A Few Good Men, behind Steve Jobs, which we talked about last yeah, week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he is in full force. This movie is in full force. I I remember a long, long time ago hearing, oh, they're going to make a Facebook movie. And it's the same sort of reaction that you might have when you hear, oh, they're making a movie about Tetris or something like that. Tetris. Or, or Battleships. Or <laughs> and which been, they've done, of course. There's so many of these movies and you think, how on earth is that going to be a movie? Yeah. And yet this is a movie which is honestly just a top quality movie. There's real quality bleeding throughout all of it. The performances, the writing, the direction, everything is really hammering home to make this random film about a social networking site into something which is saying something about the human condition, about uh, ambition, about friendship, about business, about elitism. It, It goes right the way through. And I think this movie is just amazingly effective at, drawing you in to make you really understand what is the film about and the film ultimately isn't really about facebook at all it's about mark zuckerberg and the fact that all of his friends are suing him yeah and how that came to be and somehow they managed to make this absolute mess of of all these legal lawsuits and and backstabbing and different stages into this wonderfully digestible idea and narrative that you can follow and yet the film is constantly jumping around, darting all over the place from time periods and, and putting together court cases with present day narrative scenes so that it enhances both of them rather than making it complicated. It is really wonderfully balanced, I think. Oh, totally. And it's almost, uh, I mean, in my head, while I'm remembering this, it's a bad word for it, Phil, because it's not really that descriptive. And I think it maybe gives the wrong impression. So really, I shouldn't say it, but I will say it. It almost is quite drug-like in the way that it drags you in because it's quite sort of luscious and cleverly shot. And you kind of feel yourself getting sucked into uh, this weird sort of uh, tidal wave of success that all these young guys get into and in, and just like them you start losing your sense of sort of perspective and stuff so that when you finally meet Justin Timberlake as the Napster guy you sort of think like this guy sounds you know crazy but he also makes sense and you start you know do you know what I mean you he David Fincher however he's done it has made you empathize with these guys who are almost on another planet it is amazing because it's essentially rich guys arguing with rich guys about how rich they should be. Yeah, right. That's what it ultimately becomes down to. And yet it doesn't feel like that at all because they really do a good job of characterising the main two. Eduardo Saverin, played by Andrew Garfield, Fantastic. brilliantly. Yeah, brilliantly. Awesome. This was the film that put him on the map. And then you've got Jesse Eisenberg giving uh, a kind of bizarre caricature performance and yet somehow it feels entirely appropriate when you look at that like kind of dorky looking mark zuckerberg in real life in real photos it's completely million miles away from this weirdly coolly calculating yeah almost machine-like man and yet somehow it just works it the film isn't really interested in telling an accurate story. Instead, it says, let's use this as a, uh, as a, as a starting off point to really dissect what it is like being these people, being successful, being ambitious, all these sort of universal traits, which somehow makes a film which is about something which is quite boring, I think, actually, into something which really feels relevant and interesting and insightful. It's a very weird concoction 
and cauldron. It's almost well, it like almost a spell. Sort of. Well, that's what I mean by the drug thing. You sort of get swept up away. It almost has a vague sort of criminal feel to it, which I think you know is maybe not the, quite the right word to attach. But, but it does feel like it, almost yeah. like the back rooms of like a gangster movie. Yeah, that's right. Because stuff is being stolen and appropriated, and people are being outmaneuvered, and there are people who are getting sold out. And yeah, I mean, if it was done with guns and stuff in, instead of uh, angry looks, hurtful words and money, then yeah, the whole way it's done could suit that kind of film. And it's almost directed as that. It sort of has that expanse of time that often gangster movies have. You know, you start with the early beginnings of the Empire and then it just grows and grows and grows. And it knows when to jump ahead and leap ahead so that the, the narrative keeps on moving. It's brilliantly judged. And just going back to what you were saying about this kind of this drug-like state, I think the look of this movie is wonderful and bizarrely unique. I can't really think of how to quite explain it, but it almost feels like a fog is on the, the, the camera and there's sort of this almost painting-like look to it. There's a softness and kind of glow, a candle-like glow to some of the party scenes, particularly in the universities. And it just means that there's kind of this bizarre haze like much like you have a a sort of odd party when there's things which shouldn't be going on happening and that's the world of these these guys as they make a social networking site it's very odd yeah i do want to throw in i mean justin timberlake i've already said it's the only time i've ever seen him be good in a film i have to admit and And he he is really good yeah and a lot of that is because he's just perfectly cast as this smooth talking guy who's great in the boardroom sort of thing but has low morals basically and then also I really like Army Hammer as the Winklevoss uh, Winklevoss <laughs> twins who are those Olympic rowers and it's amazing if you look them up in real life you know you think whoa is this for real but it, it is for real <laughs> it's, I, it's great performance and it's great casting I think the casting across the film is really good I think it's telling that the people in this film have gone on to become big names and All notable of them, I names think, yeah I mean, Rooney Mara, who's uh, playing just a small little character that's introduced in the opening scene, that sort of famous exchange as she's having a date with Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, that's right. Because what is it he says about her university? She's going to... He, he just is classically dismissive. And she, yeah, yeah, she yeah. says, I want you to know, you're going to think people don't like you because you're a nerd. It's not. It's because you're a... Jerk or something. A, a bum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That tiny little bit of screen time and a little bit through the rest of the movie, that basically made her... An actress. She is now this this notable actress who's in lots of different projects and often takes quite interesting projects. She was in Lion most recently. Yeah, yeah. And she's a talented actress and she makes a lot out of very little. Was it her first major role? I think so. I believe so, yeah. I think basically the reason why I want to talk about it on what we've been watching is because I was so surprised at how good it is and how rich it is and how well-written, well-acted, well-directed it all is. And I think there might even be some people out there who still think... I don't really want to watch a movie about Facebook. It's nothing like you think it is. And it's not, it's, it's uh, that comparison you made to almost a gangster film, I think kind of is probably one of the best comparisons I've heard. Well, you need to this. give yourself credit because you said that and I just took your no, idea. No, no, you said it. Did I? Yeah. Oh, right. You said it was criminal and then I kind of, okay. I, yeah, I, I, put, yeah. I repackaged it as gangster. So we'll take joint credit on that. a little example of the Bailey Bros dynamic at work there. Nice, <laughs> yeah. nice. But I really would say you need to see this film just to see the quality of the filmmaking. It's a really good film. I think it's even slightly underrated because of its subject matter. But it's got it all. It's got drama. It's got tension. It's got conflict. And right at the heart of it is a really clear idea of what this film is about. And it's about Mark Zuckerberg and his friendships. Yeah. 
There's one of the best, most uncomfortable confrontation scenes I've come across in film. And even though, like we say, it's not a gangster film, it doesn't come with action sequences, violence or anything like that. But emotionally, oh, it's tense. Are you talking about the, the bit where... Oh, you don't, don't give it away. Eduardo Sovereign yells, Mark! <laughs> yeah, that is the one I'm talking about. That's a great sequence. It's a really good sequence. Uh, there's, there's so many little bits to this that it's hard to pinpoint, oh, that's a really good bit. You need to check out that. That's a really telling thing. The whole movie, I think, is really well judged. Uh, there's some great court sequences and what's really surprising so much of the film is talking and yet you constantly feel like the film has energy and pace and direction well that's Sorkin's MO isn't it he does Sorkin and Fincher they really the camera work there's so many cuts but it doesn't feel exhausting and it feels like it's providing drive and energy and the other thing I want to highlight just before I give a grade is the music it's by Trent Rasner he's the Nine Inch Nails guy (laughs) yeah and it's a score like unlike any other I've really ever heard he went on to do uh, other David Fincher films he did The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo it's a great score I think it really has um, a unique little corner of the market when it comes to film scores it's sort of electro pop synthesizer but quite dark and decadent and it has just lovely little bits of uh, music in it uh, yeah I, I, it's, I'm not very good at talking about music no 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 that, that's all on it that's all I mean and it, just the way you describe the music there it's a fitting way of showing that uh, in, even in 2010, there were a lot of people who were nervous about Facebook and more or less predicted the way uh, that it has taken over uh, people's minds, basically, hasn't it? Like uh, People think in Facebook terms about their relationships, uh, about their activities. It's extraordinary stuff. So, yeah, almost prophetic, I think. The grade for me is an A, surprisingly. Nice, but I agree, Phil, definitely. The social network. Check it out if you haven't. And like and subscribe, didn't they? <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, well, there we go. Those are two movie reviews out of the way. Should we do our little special thing and then go back into two more and then finish off with a special thing? That sounds like a good plan. So which special thing shall we do? We're going to do First Night. I was still a boy when I first climbed this hill and saw what was to become my city. I named it Camelot. Camelot. A kingdom of brotherhood. Lancelot, what I offer is no life of privilege, but a life of service. And if you want it, it's yours. A city of dreams. I want to marry you, not your crown or your army, just you. He doesn't know, does he? Doesn't know what? That you and I have met before. Surrounded by enemies. Maligan wants Camelot. He always has. (laughs) Strengthened by courage. God uses people like you, Lancelot. Tell me what you want, and it's yours. I want a life with you. You know how it must be. Nothing could shatter this perfect world. The great Arthur and his great dream. Except the one thing. For just one moment, forget who you are. The only thing. Do you love him? Powerful enough to destroy it. you and you betrayed me i never believed in anything before i do believe in camelot sean connery richard gear julia ormond ladies and gentlemen this film 
it's so hard to even know where to begin. Put it into words, yeah. Because what you might have heard there is this, oh, what's this film? I haven't heard of this film. This is an epic. Ooh. And yet it's not an epic. <laughs> I don't know what it is, Phil. I think it more or less stands alone. This is Richard Gere as Sir Lancelot, or just Lancelot, in fact, at the beginning of the film. Sean Connery as King Arthur. That famous English king played by a clearly <laughs> Scottish man. Camelot. The law will judge you. Everything yes. Juliet Binoche as Guinevere, who's sort of an English peasant noblewoman. I don't really, I still never really She's understood. She's a lady, Laurie. She's, a, She's lady. a lady. But she has a very, you know, poor kingdom that she can't look after, which is why the she, whole plot begins. She can't defend it from Prince Maligant. Yes, Mr. Black Suit wearing a uh, strange face. Sort he's of, sort of leather-faced, Yeah, he? I don't quite know. <laughs> he's an unusual sort of chap. And he is the, the knight that has abandoned the round table and has decided he will be king. Sir... King Arthur is not worthy of the crown, and so he's been slowly trying to take over and rebel. And all amongst this is just a simple old Lancelot. That's right. When we first meet him, who can forget? <laughs> Teaching a man how to fight. He just takes people on and gets money for beating them, basically. That's how it works. He's a bit it? of a showman, a swordsman, yeah. a showman, and he sort of takes people on to fight them, yeah, and win the money. We have to not care if you live or die. Well, Laurie, we need to put in a couple of audio clips for this film. Yeah, I'll, I'll, put, I'll sprinkle them in as we go. Was that a trick? No, no trick. It's a way of fight. Could I do it? Tell me, I can learn. You have to study your opponent, how he moves, so you know what he's going to do before he does it. I can do that. You have to know that one moment in every fight, when you win or lose, and you have to know how to wait for it. I can do that. And you have to not care whether you live or die. And that, of course, was Rob Brydon, one of his early screen appearances. He's just a villager sort of (laughs) folding his arms and smiling. Now, Phil, why are we talking about this film as a special? It's one of these weird films which you know isn't very good, and yet somehow it has wormed its way into your heart as this sort of special family film. Yeah. And it's particularly a favourite of our family because there's so many little random bits that you can't quite explain. And yet it's almost like a meme. It kind of grows in your appreciation, in your head. What was funny was it was one of the first films ever when I thought, I'd notice all these things and I just sort of started mentioning it to, to you guys, to, yeah, yeah. To, to brothers and stuff. And like, they were like, oh yeah, I've, that's really weird as well. <laughs> and so it's kind of one of these films which we've kept on watching, even though it's not very good. But it is kind of good. It's well, so, so hard to there pin are down. positives in there. So I, I think one of the things you've got to say is that the structure of this story is about as clear as it's possible to be. Everything is done in an incredibly linear fashion. So you always know exactly what the stakes are, exactly where you are and who you're on board with and what the emerging difficulties are. So, you know, it's not a spoiler to say that there's a kind of romance that emerges uh, between Lancelot and Guinevere. Guinevere is on her way to marry Arthur to secure the safety of the kingdom. She's known him since she was young and she knows he's a good man. She's happy to marry him, excited to do so. King Arthur. Exactly, yeah. And especially the safety it will provide for her people. And then on her way there, in a carriage, I think, or is she being escorted by knights? She's going there, yeah. She gets attacked by brigands, I think. Brigands. I don't even think it's Maligans at that point, is it? I think it's sort of, he's behind it all. 
Okay, he's behind it all. And Lancelot, who just passing by in the woods, obviously saves the day in a very heroic fashion and rides off into the forest with her to keep her safe. And, you know, there's rain and everything becomes a little bit intense and they share various moments. I don't think they kiss in the woods, though, do they? No, no, no. No, no, they don't. So, And then she arrives at Camelot and everything seems to get underway. Richard Gere drops her off there and King Arthur's impressed by this young man who, well, the reason he's impressed is one of the standout moments of the film, of course. Yeah, imagine like total wipeout but medieval style or the film the tv show raven if you've ever watched kids tv in the Warrior. last 15 years <laughs> exactly the final thing it's a gauntlet made of weird wooden pendulums and things going up and down and spikes and balls on chains and things and lancelot jumps in without wearing the armor that everyone else wants to wear it's all to get a kiss from her isn't it or something, or something like that a kiss from the new queen that's right yeah and so he effortlessly makes his way through the gauntlet and this bowls Arthur over so of course he invites Lancelot immediately to a place in his round table which doesn't make much sense to me it makes no sense extraordinary unbelievable what's your name? Lancelot Lancelot you won't forget that name as Laurie said this is really played out very in a, in a very normal way it just kind of flows quite naturally it's a very 90s movie 1995 but it's got Richard Gere as the Lancelot doing no attempt at an English accent. I think this film must have been a follow-on to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and yet it just kind of is worse. Around this time, there was a lot of love for the swords and sorcery style stuff, but in a more campy way, because this is not that far off Dragonheart as well, with Dennis Quaid taking on the mantle of another sort of Arthurian-style legend. And there was obviously appetite for it at the box office, so it's not really a surprise that it got made. Richard Gere is just a very odd choice because he's not an action hero, is he? No, he's he's kind of pouty and well and he does there's a couple of moments where he does sword fighting he does an okay job at it actually uh but he's better at drama so even when, when he's stabbing someone who's lying on the ground with his sword he does it as if he's posing for a photo shoot he does his little <laughs> lips out yeah it's, it's just not a good it's not a good action performance it's not believable fighting but nevertheless that's quite that's quite a good little scene that's the fight in the dark isn't it yeah. I think one thing that we should say is that the production for this film, although it was quite lavish, it wasn't a small budget. They spent money. It's not good, man. It's not good <laughs> at all. They haven't spent it well. They need to fire their accountant. I don't know what happened. I mean, in particular, the costumes, they're made by a school arts and crafts class. Like the knights with their lapels with just the odd bits of metal on them. It's very weird. It's like almost like a fashion show, but for a, a movie. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And even Camelot itself is just, it looks like Disneyland. I mean, the, the tower and things are sort of nonsensical. There's Very a nice quaint. Shot. They've got that sort of blue, purpley rooftops. Yeah, they... exactly. There's a nice shot of them coming down at night where it's lit up by lamplight and stuff across the river. But on the whole, the whole thing is pretty tacky, isn't it? This movie plays out exactly as you'd expect it to. And yet I would say it is worth a watch. Yeah, I think it's, it's just surprisingly watchable given how obviously bad it is. And it's a very good description, Phil, being that it's one of the films you watch when you're young and you know this isn't a good film. And it, it's sort of a good learning experience from that point of view. Oh, yeah, very much so. And it and it just worms its way into your heart, like yeah, as yeah, I yeah. said. I also remember the fight towards the end where Maligant shows up. There's odd bits of violence. I mean, this is a PG, I think, but there's some surprising violence that is the sort of thing that also implants itself in your mind. Very clever. Yeah, I mean, there's one scene where Maligant punches his henchman in the face yeah. brutally, and I, that shocked me when I was seven. Not so much now, but still, I think it just has these odd little moments that do work amongst a lot of rubbish. 
It's hard to say where that kind of film has gone now because there's not as much money to throw around. I mean, this was $55 million budget, which was quite big, I suppose, at the time. Not huge, but but big enough. And it returned $127 million. So it was a financial success, I suppose, or at least over time it has proved to be. And maybe you could just risk a bit more. You could underwrite your script. You could take a chance and play Richard Gere as an action hero. You could be a bit cheesy. Exactly. But I, it just seems like the age of that kind of cheese is gone. And instead you know, not to beat the drum too much, we're left more with the Marvel-style cheese, which is formulaic and very, very safe, as opposed to a little bit rubbish, but lavish enough to to succeed. Something I really love about this movie is its honesty about good guys and bad guys and where the moral line is. It's really nice watching a movie which has uh, a villain that feels villainous and heroes that feel genuinely good and like they want to do good. So it makes it super easy to root for everyone and kind of enjoy the ride. There's a nice yeah. little sequence where uh, Lady Guinevere gets captured by Maligan and Lancelot rides out to save her yeah, and yeah. sort of does a, a spy mission inside the castle to escape and rescue her and they have to jump off a waterfall. It's just nice little moments that are just fun and good adventure and they stay with you. Yeah, definitely. Final note, I mean, this isn't directed by nobody either. It's Jerry Tucker. Do you know the film he did in 1990, Phil, starring Patrick? I was going to surprise you with this because oh, I looked you? at it beforehand. It's Ghost, which <laughs> is crazy. <laughs> well, then that makes sense why he would choose Richard Gere and why the most sort of compelling scenes and convincing scenes are the romance ones and the action and the sort of camelot stuff is a bit like, well, is this a fairy tale or what? So there you go, makes sense to me. He also directed Airplane. Oh, right. And well, he's... Like, not much comedy in this. No, no, not much comedy, but he... It's just got an odd sort of mix of things, That's isn't it? That's a surprising it? direction for the guy to take with his Yeah, career. but then he went on to produce more comedy. He did the Naked... He was a producer in the Naked Gun series and yeah, things sure, like that, sure. and Police Squad, and... And yeah, here's this little random medieval epic. Listeners, I mean, we've rambled on and on about that. <laughs> I hope you got something of interesting out of that. It is a very odd film. It makes us laugh. It sticks in our heads. It's a film you can watch knowing it's not great, but also you can get swept up by it. And maybe just maybe you'll notice some of the funny things that we noticed here. Yeah, you bet. All right, there we go. So in many ways, well, that was just another review, wasn't it? Except it was both of us. But it's a very special film. I feel yeah, yeah. First Night is is one of those films which we need to highlight as, this is an awful movie, but it's a great awful movie. Okay, well, shall I move on then uh, with my next choice? Yeah. What is it? I Spy. What you're about to hear is a national secret. This is Special Agent Alex Scott. Special. I still love hearing that I was just a regular agent until a couple weeks ago. You'll be working with a civilian. Civilian? Spy stuff. This is your spy cam. Look at the size of this thing. Size matters, but in the spy world, it's reversed. You want people to say, look how small and sexy and sleek this is, not how huge this is. Hey, what you doing hanging from ceiling like that? What you doing? No, 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 don't walk in here. Let me tell you something, man. You ain't gonna be telling me what no, to no, do all no, the time. I'm Kelly Robinson, no, baby. Don't talk to me like that. Oh, shit. Now put this in my eye. Then I got the camera in my eye. 
Hey, hey, I see me. Hey, I'm seeing what you see. I see me looking at you, looking at me. I like this. That's the type of thing we're going to be doing on the mission. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Hey, come on now. Hey, come on now. Let me at least see the good. Let me show you a little something. Kelly Robinson. Hold on. Here we go. You see that? That was a big explosion. Man! I spy. Put that on. Man, this looks like a sock. It's a spy mask. It's a special spy mask. Hey, man, this is a sock. Hey! Well, you're laughing already, Phil. <laughs> I haven't seen this film in a long time, but it's a, it's a family favourite again. Now, listeners, I have no idea what happened to this film. I was just checking the figures there, and this is categorically a box office failure. The budget was higher than its returns. And it didn't do well. People on the internet, if you look up reviews for it, don't like it. They don't think it's funny or they don't get it. Actually, one of the things I've picked up is that not unlike Mission Impossible, which we reviewed a while ago, this was very, very loosely based on an existing TV show that I think was kind of semi-serious. <laughs> and oh, right. This could not, you know, fans will absolutely hate it. Fans of the TV show were just like, what is this? Why do they remake this? And it's such a shame because we saw it obviously not having a clue about the TV show. And therefore, what we get is Eddie Murphy playing Kelly Robinson, a loud mouth, very successful boxer, providing civilian cover for Owen Wilson's Alex Scott, who's a sort of wimpy <laughs> second string uh, special agent, BNS, I think they call the security team. <laughs> and together they have to go and take down Arnold Gundars, played by Malcolm McDowell, of all people, uh, a shady arms dealer who's stolen a secret spy plane trying to sell off to the biggest bidder in uh, Bucharest, is it? Bucharest, no, Budapest. Yeah. Budapest. No, Budapest. 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 And listen, I love it. I think it's so funny. There are some scenes in this film, I think maybe some of the funniest scenes I've ever come across. There's a particular sequence where Alex Jones, Owen Wilson, is trying to chat up Famke Jansen, uh, and she is playing a special agent, Rachel, I think Rachel Wright, maybe, uh, who he's always had a crush on for years and years. But he's never got any traction with he's her. He's never been able to go on un undercover with her. That's right. And he's been desperate to go on a stakeout with her. <laughs> forever be assigned on a stakeout with her. Uh, and there's a scene where Eddie Murphy tries to help him get some confidence. They use some of their spy equipment. Uh, one, one eye has a camera. The other one has the sort of receiver for that camera on it. And it enables Eddie Murphy to use his kind of smooth skills to make Owen Wilson charming as he tries to chat up Famke Jansen. And I think just about every beat of that scene is funnier than I could have ever made it. If you gave me that setup, there's no way I would have been able to write it, direct it, perform it, anything as well as it's done there. And the, for me, the laughs just keep going up and up and up and up. And I, I think whole sequences of the film are exactly like that. You were cracking up because of that last line. It's like a suck. This is a suck. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just one line in a big, long escape sequence where uh, a bit of a heist goes wrong. <laughs> I was just thinking about it in my head. It's very funny. It's fantastic. And they end up riding away on mopeds and having to uh, hide down sewers. Basically, the whole conceit of the film is what if spies were just rubbish? Oh, and they're just normal. And I think it's a really interesting pairing. It's a very odd pairing. Owen Wilson's style of humour is very sort of dry and sort of these odd sort of slightly down on himself comments. And then Eddie, Ro uh, Eddie Robinson, Eddie Murphy is all about the loudmouth sort of bravado. And they somehow managed to mean that you get both sorts of humour going on in the same sequence. And it works. And it it just it's, it's so funny. I laughed so much at this film. And if you don't see the jokes coming, it is a brilliant little 
undercut to all of the James Bond stuff. Yo, totally. And and the thing is, it's worth not thinking of it as a Mickey take of James Bond because then all you'll be looking for are the ways it subverts that formula. And you've got to remember, this was made, what, 2002? So that's not far up. That's uh, Pierce Brosnan, isn't it, still? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it wasn't so much a Mickey take of James Bond so much as a funny buddy comedy while action movies were a big deal. I mean, you think about Rush Hour and uh, Shanghai Noon, Shanghai Nights. Uh, also, uh, Owen Wilson uh, and then Jackie Chan. All there was a lot of just funny action buddy stuff going on. And this is right in the middle of it. For whatever reason, people just didn't buy it. I, I still don't understand, Phil. I, I think it is absolutely hilarious. A lot of the, the jokes, I think, do come in the little off-the-beat, off-the-cuff lines that yeah. both of them deliver. I don't think it apart from a couple of scenes, has set-piece comedy, which Johnny English might have or anything oh, like that. Oh, comp- it's a world away from Johnny English, yeah. And so therefore I think it'd be easy for it to kind of, well, that was just a bit generic, and so therefore it kind of falls in the middle. But if you listen to the script and the delivery and, yeah, it just, I think Owen Wilson and Eddie Murphy nail it and have great chemistry in a very odd way. I totally agree, Phil, yeah. I mean, even just thinking of it now, there are lines, even the incredibly short ones, that will stay with us, I think, forever. Like, I'm just thinking of Owen Wilson going, Micro? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you booty blinded and of course <laughs> what billions of dollars billions of dollars and billions that's, yeah that's Carlos super spy he's played by the uh, the guy who's everywhere he's in dodgeball he's one of the commentators in dodgeball he's the guy that you would definitely recognise his face but if you say his name Laurie Gary Cole you have no idea who that is but I guarantee you've seen him he's one of these actors who just pops up again and again and again and he's, he's fantastic in it. he's so funny as the super spy Carlos yeah sort of fake Spanish super spy who's always making Alex incredibly jealous so, he's got a ponytail and he gets the best equipment it's great yeah i mean listeners i, I even th- i actually think it's edited and directed very well i think it's um betty thomas who also did dr doolittle and 28 days so not a huge name but a big enough name 28 days is that sandra bullock uh one with aragorn not uh, 28 days later <laughs> yeah no exactly she's trying to she's a recovering alcoholic but I, it's interesting hearing her talk on some of the specials you can see about this film what's really clear is that she totally understood the tone of the comedy and so she was she works really really well with the actors and allows their uh, sort of natural comedic potential to drive stuff and affect the dialogue and the staging and the blocking and i just think i think it's a real shame the film didn't do better because i wonder whether we might have seen more sort of screwball comedy from her if it had it's impressive that they don't overpower each other because you think they would kind of undermine each other and they yeah, just don't no, no. they just work very nicely together so, I mean, listen, as we've gone on, on about it, I think basically this film lives or dies on whether you think it's funny or not. And just know that if you watched it with Phil and I, we would be laughing almost all the way through. We'd be and laughing before repeated, the jokes. Probably repeating quite a few of the lines. Leafy Burke. Yeah, yeah, the Leafy Burke. That's a good name for it. <laughs> Leafy oh, Burke. I love it. It's, uh, yeah. So anyway, that is uh, a big recommendation if you've never seen it. It's probably quite hard to find. Eddie Murphy, Owen Wilson, I Spy. I love it. Oh, and it gets an A, definitely. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No, everyone would challenge us on that film. This is basically the A episode, isn't it? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. All right, what's your next, man? Well, the next A film is going to be A Knight's Tale. Oh, yeah. Someday, I'll be a knight. Yes, William. If he believes enough, a man can do anything. We could do this. In one month, we could be on our way to glory and riches none of us ever dreamed of. You can't even joust. I think he's getting worse. He is getting worse. I won't spend the rest of my life as nothing. You have to be of noble birth to compete. So we lie. My lords, my ladies. I have 
the pride, the privilege, nay, the pleasure of introducing to you a knight fired by night. William Thatcher didn't make the rules. He was born. I've waited my whole life for this moment. To break them. Yes! Thank you, I'll be here all week. Well, that was different. And you are... Ulrich von Lichtenstein from Gelderland. Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein. I would have him win my heart. You're my favorite knight. He's won four tournaments in a row. On a horse, that man is unbeatable. You're just a silly boy with a horse and a stick. It's called a lance. Hello? If the nobles find out who you are, there'll be the devil to pay. And pray that they don't. Ulrich von Lichtenstein is not who he appears to be. They're going to arrest you. A dozen royal guards. I love you. There's nothing else to do. Run, and I will run with you. I will not run! I'm a knight. I'm here to compete. Let's dance, you and I. no matter to me so long as i can call you my own listeners this is a very special film for me and me <laughs> but very special for, for me because i remember it being my 10 year old birthday party no really and i remember sitting there with my dad thinking oh what should i do for my party you know i'm i, I don't know i want it to be really fun and our dad just said oh what about this film and he went to the website for a night's tale played me the trailer and said Oh, that looks pretty good. Let's go check that out. And it was a great birthday party. Yeah, nice. And ever since I've loved this film. And so it has a very strong personal meaning for me. But also, I think this film is just great. Surprise, surprise. It's perfectly pitched, man. And this is another film, listeners, that is... I just don't get so much injustice in the world of film, Phil, because this only has, what, 51% or something on Metacritic? How does it not have 100%, man? No way. Who doesn't doesn't like this film? (laughs) I don't know. There's a reason why it's relentlessly on ITV. It's a great movie. It's so much fun. Basically, this is the story of William Thatcher, a peasant boy who had been a squire for a night at the start of the film. He's Sector. helping him out. Sector. And Sector isn't doing very well. He's, uh, he's sort of had a bit of a rough go on the tournament circuit and is, in fact, maybe dying and is, in fact, dead. And so William and his friends, Roland and Watt, who are also squires for this night, realise that... He, they might be able to get some prize money if they just can get him through the tournament, but they can't get a dead body through the tournament. So William says, "Why don't I dress up as this knight and I'll just wear the I'll wear the helmet and nobody will know nobody will be the none wiser." And so this sets in motion a bit of an opportunity. They say, "Well, why don't we just keep on doing this? Why don't we just make up a knight and then we'll make money?" And so what begins is this sort of across the the continent, across Europe tour as these group of buddies with no real royal pedigree enter the world of jousting and sword fighting. Yeah, that's right. And it's an all-star cast. Obviously, Heath Ledger plays William. Uh, you've got Paul Bettany turning up as Geoffrey Chaucer, the famous writer who's there to forge his papers of nobility. That's and also be his sort of announcer, his... Uh, his, uh, his MC. Harold, Harold. Oh, Harold, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And then also Mark Addy, who again is a name you might not recognise, but a face you certainly would, plays Roland. And Alan Tudyk, of course, as what? And then Laura Fraser turns up as the blacksmith's Kate later on Scottish in the film. Scottish girl, yeah. Scottish, yeah. 
I do think this film's cast is one of the best bits about the film because Heath Ledger is a top quality leading man. He is charming, funny, uh, handsome, brave, all the things you want. And dramatic as well. There's a couple yeah. of dramatic scenes in the film because there's always this tension. Will they get found out? Will he get discovered as not the knight Sir Ulrich? And you can tell that he knew exactly what kind of film he was getting into because it's a note-perfect performance. The tone is spot on. And as you say, he holds it all together with his personality and his approach to it. He can handle the comedy and, yeah, as you say, he can handle the drama. And I think a lot of credit needs to go to the other actors as well because they really sell you on the, the camaraderie between the t- the team. Yeah. You know? And it's amazing. You feel like you're part of the team. You yeah. feel like you're going on this run of success But don't you them. think it doesn't make your heart ache because then a film ends and you wish that you were with them. It's uh, one of these films. Have you, are you familiar with this? People who are desperate to live in medieval times. You know, there's lots of medieval reenactment clubs up and down Renaissance the country. Renaissance fairs and things. Exactly. And people do jousting because there's a real romanticism to it. And even though this film has grime and illness and problems in it and poverty, it also has like the sheer joy of just friends and just getting on with things. And it, it makes the medieval years look so amazing. You'll want to be, you'll wish you were there. I, it, it genuinely is a bit bittersweet for me. A part of the reason why the film works so well is it doesn't, uh, the director made the very conscious decision to use modern songs and a modern sense to what this jousting competition was. Brian Helgeland uh, makes it into this sort of, Saturday football match of a competition rather than a stiffy boring thing for nobility it makes it something that peasants want to come to they're cheering they're chanting they're singing we will rock you as a way to modernize it for audiences so that you get the spectacle that this show must have been watching these knights fight each other and it makes it all the more entertaining for the audience as well and I think a lot of that is down to the music choice itself I think I've discovered well, we lots. will rock you, of course, yeah. But I've discovered so many good songs through this film. I've even talked about it as being one of my favourite music moments in film altogether is when Heath Ledger has to go to a dance and impress some uh, oh, yeah, of the other knights right. as Sir places, Ulrich. Places, places. <laughs> <laughs> and this very stuffy, boring, fluty, not, not that flute's boring, but fluty <laughs> song plays and then it just slowly transitions into Golden Years by David Bowie and man, that is such a cool little moment. Golden Years. It is great. And it's a great little sequence and suddenly it's fun and lively and engaging. Do you know something that is right in tune with that that I think this film does excellently and fantastically well and has been sorely missing in film for the last 10 years because this is 2001, I think, is that there are real sets everywhere and stuffed full of extras. And the extras are a huge part of this film in such a strange way. Because when those songs are playing, and when you have crowd sequences, they're all in it. They, they all work hard at it. They all look authentic. They're excited. They're cheering. They're sad. They're booing. You know, whatever it is. And they're in stands. It's not CGI. CGI is used brilliantly because it fills in all the gaps that are needed to make the world feel real. But whenever they can use a real set, they do. And in fact, they contribute one of the best jokes in the film, which is after one of Sir Ulrich's fights that he wins, a sword fighting competition, uh, Geoffrey Chaucer jumps in and does this massive speech That's right. about him. And then there's a massive pause until Roland pipes up and says, and they all cheer. <laughs> and apparently that was genuine because the extras didn't, they didn't speak English because they were Bulgarian or something oh, like that. No way, really? And so they didn't know when to cheer. That's so and then funny. they were prompted and they cheered and it becomes a joke in the is film. That really, How that's, good is that? that's fantastic. This film, uh, uh, that kind of ties in really well. I think this film's really funny. It's very funny. And the characters are very distinct and different. You've got Geoffrey Chaucer character providing a bit of wit. You've got Roland sort of making fun and light of the situation. He's quite constant, isn't he? You've yeah. got Watt as this sort of 
infuriated man who's constantly saying, I will fong you. Yeah, whatever that means. And all of that works well. So there's a real nice chemistry that doesn't just focus on one style of joke or humour. And it means there's plenty of things to enjoy for all sorts of people. You've, you've conspicuously left out a couple of key players in this narrative, Phil. Number one, Rufus Sewell. Well, I just had to uh, come on to him, actually. Count Adamar. Count Adamar, a brilliant villain, is a great performance. He is the ultimate idiot face knight. And he does a good job. He's a very good anti-William Thatcher. And he gives a it gives as good as he gets, I think. And he plays the sort of, you know, if you want to look at it symbolically, he's the elite, the sniffy elite that everyone would like to upend and get one over because we're all the common man. Come on, we're, you know, we're as good as these guys. And he he's perfect for that. In fact, he, he sort of is that character in my mind which is yeah, a real problem whenever I see Rufus Sewell now even in like the holiday or well, something exactly. like that and then I just think Count Adamar he's such an I idiot I know and you know not to trust the guy <laughs> don't he, trust there's him there's no way in the holiday he's going to turn out to be a good guy I couldn't you know ever see that guy as a romantic lead now he's forever a villain but it, and it's, he does act it terrifically well he's, he's very very good and the uh, other one you know I haven't mentioned is <laughs> Jocelyn isn't it of course uh, Jocelyn aka Shannon Sossamon Phil she was also in The Holiday. She was Jack Black's uh, girlfriend before Kate Winslet oh, comes into yeah. the picture. And she's a sort of glam American girl, obviously American, attempting to do an English accent, but not even, not even half getting there. I, I hate Jocelyn. I think she's the worst. And yet she still works in the film. Oh, you're, I think you're wrong. I think she's a really key part of this movie because she, she's so infuriating, but also quite charming. And you can completely believe that Heath Ledger is in love with her in the film. And actually there's a great sequence where he has to prove his love to Jocelyn yeah. by losing. And I think it's brilliantly well written because it shows that he wants to do it because he loves her, but he thinks it's so stupid. And like, he's like, because I have to lose because I have to show her I love her. And they're all like, <laughs> why? This is so stupid. And it's a, it's a lovely scene. It's really yeah, well it's done. Stuff. And it, and it, I don't know. Everything about this movie feels very heightened and very appropriate. And you never feel like they lose reality, but it's a great sort of, exaggeration of real life yeah and it's joyful from start to finish i mean you're forgetting as well i think there's some nice camera work too even just like with william on the horse strolling through the camp and stuff there's some nice i think it must be crane shots tracking him the way through the camera just feels very very natural to me and there's also a lovely profile shot uh when william goes to see jocelyn at a church Do you don't remember that yes and uh, he accidentally brings a horse into the church and stuff <laughs> it's just very very clever and it, it, it just illustrates a lot about their characters as well that they're on different sides and trying to reconcile i I think start to finish, it's a great film. I, I just cannot understand any negativity towards it. One thing I will say is this has a very similar sort of place in, in my heart as First Night yeah. in the same way because it has that meme-like quality. There's lines which I've said to my sister, twirly, twirly, twirly. Like, oh, there's yeah. little lines that in the movie. And we've been doing this, have you noticed, over the last couple of weeks? Oh, well, William's dad, uh, the Thatcher, of course. Have you changed your stars? <laughs> exactly. Ulrich, <laughs> He's amazing. Ulrich, Ulrich. All these little moments <laughs> in the movie which we have made into a bigger thing than they actually are. They're just little bits in a movie. And yet, for our family, and in particular our family, they're little things that we quote to each other all the time. That's and the it, one. I love it. I love this movie. I think it's fantastic. And I cannot believe somebody couldn't watch it and have a great time. What's your grade, Phil? Oh, A. Maybe yep. even A+. Plus. I love this movie. I would give it an A+, plus as well. I think it's endlessly watchable. A, a total success. Listeners, do tell us if you agree. I guess tell us if you disagree, but there's no way we're going to agree with your points. We're going to take you to task. <laughs> you have to have really thought through why it's not a good film if you want to challenge us. 
Yeah, nicely done, Phil. Superbaileybros at gmail.com or tweet us at superbaileybros. That's the one. Okay, final bit, and we're really running long on this, Phil. I hope people are enjoying the bumper It's a bumper goodbye. It is. Uh, We're going to do all of the Harry Potters. How on earth do we play a clip for that? Is there a medley online or something we can steal? See if I can find something. If not, we'll know I failed. Did you ever make anything happen? Anything you couldn't explain? You're a wizard, Harry. I'm a what? Dear Mr. Potter, we are pleased to inform you that you have been accepted at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. In a few moments, you will pass through these doors and join your classmates. Keep an eye on the staircases. They like to change. They like to change. And well, there we go, listeners. We failed to find an appropriate clip thing, so we're going to play mini clips uh, from all eight films. That sounds like a bad idea. It does, but who cares? All right, Phil, quickly. Harry Potter 1, Philosopher's Stone. Harry Potter 1, directed by Christopher Columbus, the guy behind Home Alone and other family-friendly films. Yep. This was the first film. It found Daniel Radcliffe. It found Emma Watson. It found Rupert Grint. And I think it's a, a very unique place in British film hearts now yeah. because it is, I think, a officially a Christmas movie. Yeah, no, definitely. And th- this is 2001, by the way, same year as A Knight's Tale. So I-, I feel like there was a golden age going on. I really love this. Chris Columbus gets a lot of criticism for putting in everything from the book and being slightly unimaginative with his direction, just things happening for no clear reason and not much energy. I totally disagree because I think the whole thing is an atmosphere piece. It's wide-eyed, welcome to Hogwarts, very slow, very mysterious and magical. The score by John Williams is literally, it's going to be remembered for generations, isn't it, I think? It is a wonderful Who piece of music. Who can't sing that theme song? Everyone, it's fantastic. Uh, and I think the kids deliver the best performances they've done in all series. Do you think so? No, I, I disagree so. there. I disagree Ron there. is funny in it. And uh, Hermione is just, you know, a bit of a annoying sort of know-it-all. Har- oh, maybe Harry is the worst. I mean, I, can, <laughs> I haven't any money. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Uh, I think this is good, actually. I, uh, this is one of my favourite in uh, all eight. I think what's good about this film is it has a real earnestness to it. And it exists in a way that doesn't have any cynicism to it. Yeah, no, that's true. It's very childlike and, and engrossing. So for me, I, I would give this one a, a B plus, actually. I like it a lot. I give it a B, maybe a bit less, but I do enjoy it. All right, let's move swiftly on to number two. The education in the magical arts continues. Pixies. Laugh if you will, Mr. Finnegan. See what you make of them. No! <laughs> Old rivalries grow stronger. Slytherin's got a new seeker. Malfoy. You know that's me, Potter. And something in the school's dark past will be awakened. The Chamber of Secrets has indeed been opened. Unless the culprit is caught, it is likely the school will be closed. Harry Potter must go home. Chamber of Secrets, also directed by Christopher Columbus. And I think, yeah, this is not as good as the first one. And I, personally, I think that reflects that the second book was not quite as big a success. Although it had some big themes in there, like the finale with the, was it, the Basilisk Snake and mm. the Sword of Gryffindor. I, it didn't quite feel quite right. It felt meandering and it felt slow. I mean, this is the one that has that ghost's party in it, isn't it? Yeah, it does in the books, yeah. Yeah, and there was something about the book that never quite captured me in the same way. But the characters are still strong. Hogwarts is still a wonderful place to return to. Again, I think 
Christopher Columbus is good at possibly the success of the first film in terms of box office numbers anyway would have meant they would just thought well let's just stick with him and see what he does and, and I think basically what happens is the, the problems of the first one get exposed here that's well or even exaggerated that's right it, 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 again there's no sort of urgency to the direction everything in the book is crammed in except the ghost party thankfully I think it's uh, telling that that's even even in this film which includes everything this isn't in it exactly yeah and then Dobby of course turns up who is important any thoughts on Dobby Phil a pure CGI character still a bit of a novelty back then I hated him <laughs> I remember I hate, I hate Dobby because I remember doing very bizarrely in an RS lesson having to debate who was better Gollum or Dobby and I got absolutely wiped by uh, the rest of the class because they just liked Dobby more are it you wasn't, kidding they weren't me? listening to all my points about how Gollum was a conflicted character and is oh, he good or bad Phil, and nice can he try. be redeemed and no it was just like we like Dobby we like Dobby so I hate Dobby Dobby he's terrible I, I never liked the characterization that he gets in the film compared to how he is in the books they never quite sort of the vocal performance is just wrong. Everything it's about it. It's very wrong. odd, very odd. One final note. I, I like Jason Isaacs in this. I think actually this is his best performance as Lucius Malfoy. I, I, and I actually think J.K. Rowling writes um, Mr. Malfoy better in that book too. Interesting. My problems with the film are I'm not sold on Kenneth Branagh as Gilroy Oh, I like Lockhart. him. Yeah, he's good. I, no, I think no, he's no, great. No, 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 <laughs> no. I disagree with him. I really like the no bones uh, in the arm bit though yeah, when they yeah. bend his hand back. That's great. Good Quidditch uh, sequence in this with Malfoy there. Potter. Potter. All right, okay. And of course, this is the one. Good one, Goyle. Good one, Goyle. Another, <laughs> another meme in our, in our family. Yeah, that's the one. Okay, let's keep moving. What's, oh, sorry, what's the grade? Oh, for me? Oh, C. I would give this a... I, really, I would still give it in the Bs, man. I I'd never really want to watch this one. I'd give it a B-. minus. Okay, and on to Prisoner of Azkaban. Sirius Black has escaped from Azkaban prison. He's a murderer. Sirius Black is the reason the Potters are dead. And now he wants to finish what he started. I want you to swear to me you won't go looking for Black. Why would I go looking for someone who wants to kill me? There's something moving out there. It was a Dementor, one of the guards of Azkaban, is searching the train for Sirius Black. It is not in the nature of a Dementor to be forgiving. This is unequivocally the best one. You think so? I think it has to be. We've said that a few times via email, so it won't take too long. To we won't say. take too long. I think it's got a great mood. I think it perfectly transitions from the, the slightly earnest and naive, wide-eyed, baby-faced children into teenagers who are slightly petulant, slightly maybe got a bit of uh, romance in it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. They're growing up. They're being a bit cooler. They're a bit more angsty. And it's got a really interesting story because it's the only film which doesn't really feature Voldemort at all. That's right, yeah. And I think it, it gives a whole other level of depth to all these guys that hasn't really been there before. You see little uh, moments of their independence. And a scene that was called out by one of our listeners for being bad, which is when Harry first gets into the dorm and they all eat the sweets and steam comes out their ears and stuff. I really like that scene. It's, it's not needed uh, to tell the story, but it just shows these are teenagers. They're enjoying being silly. They're excited to be back at Hogwarts. It, I think it's a film that treats its audience really, really well because the film knows you're excited to be back. And so... It is excited itself. Do you know what I mean by that? Mm. And I think the cast overall is great. I think Lupin is well done. He looks tired. And even though it's not what I imagined in the book, I've slowly... Uh, David Hewless. Oh, I've, yeah. I've accepted him as Lupin. And I think all of those scenes with him are great. I think Snape, as usual, Alan Rickman is fantastic. Turn to page 394. Exactly. And 
I think Sirius Black is a really good mystery for the kids to be investigating. That's right. And we've had criticism again by email that the obviously they don't quite treat the mystery as the book does. And a lot of the details which turn out to be important later on are not included. But this is the nature of film. It's exactly what I said right at the beginning of this podcast. A filmmaker, a storyteller needs to know what to leave in and what to leave out without compromising your engagement in the story. And I don't think there'll be anyone who's watched Harry Potter through one to eight who feels that they're missing something. No, and I think it would be amazing to see what Alfonso Cuaron would have done with the other films. Yeah, I agree, Phil. It's also pretty funny, actually, because this this film, uh, unlike the other Harry Potter films, is constantly popping up on those video essays on YouTube. Yeah, very popular so if you film want to get if you want to get a proper breakdown of some of the techniques that the director's using in the film, just Google it, YouTube it, and you'll find some great videos on Prisoner of Azkaban. That's right. And for me, this is the film that really made me want to live in Harry Potter's world, definitely. When he stays at Leaky Cauldron, I love that. Oh, what a great sequence. Okay, moving on. Yes. All right, number four. What is it again? Goblet, Goblet of Fire. Of fire. Hogwarts has been chosen to host a legendary event, the Triwizard Tournament. And now the champion selection, Victor Crump, Fleur Delacour, Cedric Diggory, Harry Potter! How did you do it? I didn't put my name in that cup. I don't want eternal glory. It's not our moody. Father Killing curse. Only one person is known to have survived it. And he's sitting in this room. People die in this tournament. Now, Phil, we disagree on this film. I really hate this film. Tell me why. I'm not a massive fan of the book. I think lots of people say it's amazing and it's the one which really redefined Harry Potter and made it into the global sensation it became. I think the flaw is in the plot of the movie. I think the Triwizard Tournament is a bit dumb and it bothers me that every single aspect of the tournament is really bad from an audience perspective yeah that is hard to i mean this is the thing is phil those criticisms are jk rowling's aren't they not really the films i mean but it's even more highlighted in the fact that this is a it feels quite brief and the kids aren't as good as they were before they've all got weird long hair and yeah it doesn't have that right richness that the previous film had it misses a sense of wonder, I think, more than anything else. And it, it feel, it's very fast. They try to cram in an awful lot. So it starts to take on a bit of a slideshow montage feeling, which I think then dominates Harry Potter from this point on. Um, it's Mike Newell. He directed Prince of Persia. So I, I still think there's at least there's warmth in it and there's some good humour in it as well. There are some good moments, yeah. I, I, I quite like it, Phil. I really love the winter ball scene, except for the bands that they get who are filled with like Britpop icons like Jarvis Cocker and Johnny Greenwood because um, the song just doesn't really work does it but like I, I really love that sequence and when Hagrid's there dancing around I think uh, Brendan Gleeson's Mad Eye Moody is, is really good he's pretty compelling on the screen uh, and I think some of the threat feels really well this is of course the uh, first film where someone kicks the bucket and it's you know, Cedric Diggory of course sad played by Robert Pattinson yeah and Mr. Twilight of I course. think he does a good job as Cedric Diggory and actually that that revelation of what's happened to him with his father I think is genuinely quite sad yeah, and moving I think it's I think a lot of it is quite well put together personally Phil it of course has I don't give a damn what your father thinks he's vile and cruel and you're pathetic <laughs> one of the best put downs from Harry Potter <laughs> oh ever. yeah oh burn deep sequence. burn <laughs> I, I do still in, enjoy this film but perhaps the marks of decline are there. You have pointed out, as many have, that Dumbledore's character is very oddly handled. It's funny because Michael Gambon I didn't mind in Harry Potter 3. In this film, he suddenly seems 
completely off the rails and and it doesn't feel like Dumbledore anymore it feels like a movie version of Dumbledore which is very angry and irate and less assured than Richard Harris ever was that's right he looks nervous a lot of the time and his relationship with Harry is much less clear but okay is that enough on that one well I will say one last thing I'd be remiss to not mention uh, Ralph Fiennes as Voldemort Rafe Rafe Fiennes yes this is his entrance isn't it and his entrance actually is Uh, genuine I can touch (laughs) like it's genuinely quite scary and exciting Um, and he I remember thinking oh wow this is quite the villain and to have all that build up to then have him revealed is quite a horrific scene it's a shame that they kind of spoil him in later films I know what you mean Uh, we forgot to give a grade for Azkaban so what's your grade for Azkaban oh A, A yeah me too A and this one uh, Goblet of Fire is like a B minus. I give this one a B. There we go. All right, next one, which is the Order of the Phoenix. Have fun, guys. The Ministry of Magic is pleased to announce the appointment of Dolores Jane Umbridge as High Inquisitor to address the falling standards at Hogwarts School. Things at Hogwarts are far worse than I feared. You have been told that a certain dark wizard is at large. This is a lie it's not a lie i saw it we've got to be able to defend ourselves and if umbridge refuses to teach us how we need someone who will every great wizard in history has started out as nothing more than what we are now if they can do it why not us it's sort of exciting isn't it stupefy breaking the rules who are you and what have you done with hermione granger you're a really good teacher harry now, Phil, the dramatic tonal shift that is obvious there, I think must be down to some kind of massive culture phenomenon that happened in between Goblet of Fire and this one. I haven't done my history, I've <laughs> done research, so I don't know what it was. Just an instinct. Something has gone wrong somewhere, and all of a sudden, executives and studios think that what audiences need is darkness. This is where that whole dark film cliche came in and suddenly everyone is around saying oh well this one is much darker than the and last one. It's very grey. Yeah as if that is a positive thing. I don't. I still don't understand where it came from and why it remains to this day that people think that darkness is good. When did The Dark Knight come out out of interest? Uh, 2008 I think it was. Was it really? And maybe that's what it was then because that means Batman Begins was out and the dark Batman Begins. But what's, what's interesting is this film I wouldn't describe it as dark. I'd describe it, it as wants murky. To be. Oh it's I murky. think it wants to be dark. Its palette is murky but that's what they're trying to go for. You're forgetting Harry's kind of militaristic speeches to the Dumbledore's army, and, and it's suddenly not Harry the reluctant hero just trying to do the right thing. It's Harry the kind of reluctant leader of a mini-revolution. And, I, and you know, you pointed out to me, Harry himself seems off, doesn't he? He seems odd. He doesn't seem like a real person of that age. Well, especially with that um, side-parting haircut. Yeah, it's a very odd haircut. It's, it's funny, neat. I feel like my... My preferences for the film go with my preferences for Harry's hair in the films. <laughs> I think so. Very much so, weirdly. I, I, you know what, listeners, I throw it all at David Yates, and I think that that's backed up by the, the remaining films in the franchise. I think he doesn't know how to use these actors. I don't think he knows how to make them seem like they're friends. I don't think he knows how to direct films, really. I, like, I mean, maybe I feel differently having seen him do Tarzan, which I sort of weirdly enjoyed. But the, the pace is all wrong. I think the writing, the screenplay is terrible. It emits stuff badly from the books that change the whole tone and purpose for certain scenes in there. Mm. I think the mise-en-scene and the production is really poor in places. Like there's one particular scene where they take an exam and the hall is completely barren except for their desks. And it's like a graphic designer has taken over the job. You know, graphic designers are all into negative space or whatever and making things very artful. But... 
film people are good at creating mess and realism and, and making it feel exactly and this doesn't feel like a world anymore it feels like reconstructions of stuff symbolism and, and things like exactly. that exactly and I, I just i really really don't like this and i think the score is awful it's uh, nicholas hooper i think is his name he's a mate of david yates he's not had a big track record in hollywood don't think he deserves one based on this performance I, the thing which always bothered me is the camera never feels settled. It always feels like it's moving, like a montage. That's right, really slowly, isn't it? As if it's a sort of exhibition or and something. And it feels like a, it feels like a slideshow of the film. It feels yeah. like a condensed version. Um, and it's bizarre because it's the longest book, and yet it doesn't feel like a long film at all. It feels too brief. And in fact, they admit the, like you say, they admit probably the most important scene in the book and probably in the franchise is when Harry and Dumbledore have a big, big, big conversation and there's not, it's not there. And so you don't ever have the motivations for Harry for the rest of the series. Yeah, totally. And, and the final, this, the finale where you have fights and things going on, this is also, in my opinion anyway, although I might need to check myself, uh, where they have fights between the Death Eaters and other wizards and they made that choice so that in spells suddenly don't matter anymore. They're so, like blaster bolts, aren't they? That's right. And also Death Eaters whizzing around uh, like smoke on the air or like whatever the phrase is. Your <laughs> yeah, which is then something that's only Voldemort is meant to be able to do uh, in the final book as a mark of how amazing at magic he is. And that's a cinematic moment. And they decided to trash it for the sake of making it like a superhero movie. I, I think it is one of the most disappointing franchise films around, actually. But I will say there is a really good sequence when... Harry and... Are you thinking of Cho Chang? No. And that was a bad sequence. That was a bad sequence, of course. Harry and Voldemort and Dumbledore are all in uh, a scene together. That kind of towards the end. I think that is quite well done. Hard to mess it up because mm. uh, they follow basically what the book does. Uh, and Nicholas Hooper ever so slightly improves on his score towards the very end, but not enough. All right, should we move on? That film from me, Phil, gets an absolute C. It's, I don't think it's good. I think it's worse than that. I think it might be even a D. I think that's really bad. <laughs> I don't know if they can go quite that far, but okay. Next one, Harry Potter and Half-Blood Prince. What you are looking at are memories. In this case, pertaining to one individual. This is perhaps the most important memory I've collected. I'd like you to see it. In all the years Tom's been here, he's never once had a visitor. You're the doctor, aren't you? No. Who are you? Well, I'm like you, Tom. I'm different. I can speak to snakes, too. They find me, whisper things. This, I think, is one of the ones which I really love. I'm not sure if it's the best one or the worst one or whatever, but I just think it's a really well-done film that actually works quite well because the book is one of my favourites. And I think David Yates slightly manages to shake off some of the problems of the fifth film where it's constantly moving. And this film, in fact, Harper Prince returns to... A bit more of a slower pace, a bit more of a uh, letting things sort of blossom as they go. Well, there's a lot less in this to cover, perhaps, because the story is very simple and a lot of it is just flashback and learning stuff. But then also you've got the kind of classic Hogwarts drama. Harry's sort of trying to get a girlfriend and Ron's got a girlfriend and it's quite a lot of humour as well. Well, that ta- and that takes it back to episode f- four, right? The Goblet of Fire, there's sort of jokes and awkwardness. Hermione's good in this, I seem to remember. Emma Watson is quite good when she starts being involved more in the humour side of things. And I think there's a really good sequence with uh, where Harry takes a luck- lucky potion. And I like that sequence. It's kind of funny and silly. And yet then it transitions into quite an emotional scene. Um, with Horace Slughorn 
played by Jim Broadbent, and I think he does a good job. Yeah, uh, he's A class. I mean, there's no surprise there. And I think Michael Gambon slightly eases back a bit. He's less the worst sort of thing ever, and instead kind of has a little bit of Dumbledore to him. I agree with you, Phil, and the story is so full of heart and a really raw emotion. That's building up to the end of the saga, obviously. But I still think David Yates' weaknesses as a director are there. And one of the best examples I can think of is the way he handles the opening sequence in which Dumbledore comes across as just an absent-minded kook who's just a nut job. Like, why would you hang out with this guy? And there's absolutely no excitement in that whole scene. In the book, you know, it just this is, this is when they turn up to Slughorn's house and they know there's a disaster everywhere. There's chairs are tipped over, there's blood on the walls. And it's as if it's a really intense, dangerous scene where someone might be about to burst out of a cupboard and attack Harry. In the film, it's the slowest, weirdest, most disaffected way that whole scene could have been shot i thought it was so disappointing i think probably one of the weakest parts of the film is the fact that they have this weird sequence in the middle of the film with the burrows being attacked the oh yeah home. that's this is when that happens yeah and then they and it's a really misjudged scene because it undermines the finale of the film and the finale of the film the way that they do it it makes the entire plot pointless. But then you see, the reason they did that is because they removed the big battle at the end of this film to make room for the big battle at the end of the next film. And so they thought, we've got to have something exciting happen, so let's do this stupid scene. Which is a very bad decision because this film needs to stand on its own. Yeah, yeah, and it, you know, that whole sequence with the reeds and everything and then rushing through the reeds and, oh, is the werewolf and about Fen- to come out? Greyback, that's whatever. another one of these uh, odd sort of graphic design scenes that I'm talking about where it feels completely characterless and emotionless. We're not in the middle of Jurassic Park Lost World here where there are velociraptors in the long grass why are there suddenly these massive reed fields a meter away from the door that weren't there in the last film Mm. it's just i think it's incompetent basically and it's just the great acting and the good original story that saved it i do like the kids in this film i think the the kids do a good job i think ron's very funny he's back on form yeah although he's starting to get a bit emo and mopey uh yeah but i know what you mean yeah for me the film i think it gets b minus i still don't think it's good unfortunately phil i like it a lot i think b plus All right, there we go. And uh, not quite last, but nearly last, uh, Deathly Hallows Part 1. We have infiltrated the Ministry. You have nothing to fear if you have nothing to hide. The longer we stay here, the stronger he gets. I must be the one to kill Harry Potter. Let's get off the streets, get somewhere safe. One time you get undercover before someone murders him. That way we won't know which Harry Potter is the real one. So just quickly before we move on, we forgot to do a quick uh, shout out to Ginny Weasley, of course, Phil. She is the worst. Shoelace. The least romantic woman ever. I'm not usually late. (laughs) She's so bad. Unfortunately, you know, again, I'll throw this at the feet of David Yates. He did not coax a good performance out of, what's her name? Bonnie Wright, I think it is. They should have just recast her. Yeah, big mistake all the way through. Okay, Deathly Hallows Part 1. All the same problems here, listeners. I disagree, think, disagree, disagree. I think it's sponsored by the National Tourism Board of uh, Great Britain. <laughs> and no. uh, David Yates takes us on a meandering walking tour of the I really disagree. This is the one in where... wonderful graphic design locations. No. And nothing like real no. life. And are really pointless. And it's devoid of emotion, cold, brittle, meaningless. Absolutely disagree. I think they do the travelling grimness of... Uh, Harry, Hermione and Ron trying to look for uh, a certain something. I think they do it quite well. They do the tension quite well and the build-up and 
the sort of angst that they're developing. I think I believe it, and I really it's much criticised, but I really like the scene where Hermione and Harry have a little have dance. a little awkward dance. People, I think, misread it as a romantic moment when it's not. I think it's in fact a choice to try and be upbeat, even though they don't feel it. And I, I think, think it's really well done. I hear everything you're saying, and I, I, I just think ugh, so much of it is the fondness I have for the story that uh, means I can enjoy it while I watch it. I just, again, it's just the lack of urgency. He doesn't know how to create realistic scenes. Like the, the sequence in the cafe at the beginning in London. Do you remember that? What, when they burst in, they apparate, and then it goes badly? Exactly. That is tailor-made for the screen. And J.K. Rowling has done all the work for the guy. And yet he can't even get that right. The only good moment in it is when Harry uh, draws his wand out. He times that right. Everything else about it manages to be quite boring. And it's like the most exciting scene. How, how is it possible to make it feel dull? I don't get it. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I don't think it's a well-directed mo- movie, but I think there's good moments in it. Okay, we should just keep moving on. Yeah, let's yeah. do this. All right, it's for me, part I, two, isn't it? That one gets a, um, what did I give uh, Path of Prince? B minus or C? You give it a B minus, I think. All right, this one gets B minus two. I think this is a B for me. Harry Potter. You have fought valiantly. But you have allowed your friends to die for you rather than face me yourself. On this night... Confront your fate. We can end this. I never wanted any of you to die for me. And then we go, we forgot to say Bill Nye is Rufus Scrimger. You didn't think he was any good? No, he's not quite cast well, but there's a couple of miscastings, I think, as the movies go on. It's because they're showcasing Best of British, aren't they? Kingsley Sacklebolt was a nightmare. He's just got a boring, <laughs> boring fat guy. <laughs> they got him wrong, didn't they? Completely not the character to Yeah, loose his god style. Ugh. Yeah. And so, and then we're on to the finale, listeners, which we're all promised and waiting for. This was one of the most obvious split into two parts uh, things that This happened. was the one which set it off all, all together, didn't it? I suppose it more or less did, yeah. And then Twilight so, did it, and then everyone else did it. Oh. Yeah, yeah, Lots of box office receipts, Phil. And mm. it's so they can have a big battle that was also really poorly handled and very slowly staged. Not much excitement It was in that. massively poorly handled. It was just I, very dull. Awful. Awful. There's no consequence to the battle. They constantly detach you from it rather than making you feel the fear and chaos. And it's the absolutely the opposite of what you want from a battle, yeah. I think. And there's so many moments which are written into the book which don't make it onto the screen. And instead, they just seem to throw random CGI characters that you've never met in the Harry Potter franchise, in the movie versions anyway. They're just there and they kind of go on this green screen run through of the of the castle. They also change the final battle. So uh, Neville doesn't cut off the... or oh, it's, Neville yeah, doesn't do on. his thing in quite the same way. Instead, you have Harry and Voldemort flying around Hogwarts and sort of holding each other. Very weird. And then they stage Bellatrix and uh, Mrs. Weasley's fight very oddly. Yeah, they it was push it dumb. to the side of the hall. Well, I mean, I sort of got that impression from the book itself, which was quite chaotic. And I think J.K. Rowling would have wanted that. You know, to communicate a big battle in text is very difficult. Um, and so I, I think there was 
I give them slightly more credit in this case because I think it was hard to replicate what J.K. Rowling had done for the screen. But there were definitely better ways of doing it. The, the, one, of the, one of the problems they had was that having split it into two halves, they had to justify that by making it, you know, epic and everything. Like the sequence where all the Death Eaters um, shoot the big shield around Hogwarts. Yeah, that's fine. Like, there's a couple visually, of moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So but, that, that's why they've done it. Um, I really have problems with the first sequence in this. Gringotts. Film. Yeah, which should be great. Um, th- this Gringotts sequence... There are bits of it that are okay, but it lacked uh, the nervousness that was required. Um, like they were the book again. J.K. Rowling did all the work for them. There are great heisty moments written into that where they're just getting by on the by the skin of their teeth, and instead it always feels awkward. You want that moment? Awkward. You want that moment where you feel like it's just about to be broken. They're going to get rumbled, and then it's yeah. somehow last minute some unexpected thing makes it work. And there's never any moment like that. No, and there's a really odd, uh, I think, misstep in terms of humour where an innocent, uh, confounded goblin guy gets torched to a crisp by the dragon. Yeah, very odd, very odd. And I didn't like the look of the dragon either. No, I, th- I think that was all wrong. I realised we forgot to talk about the infiltrating the mini- ministry sequence in the last film as well, where the actors portraying Harry, Hermione and Ron also do a slightly strange job. The guy playing Harry is just... Uh, <laughs> he's got a weird limp going on. I never understood that scene. Um, yeah, so I, I, unfortunately, listeners, I think you can tell, certainly for me, the Harry Potter series takes a dive bomb... Uh, from episode five onwards i think the quality dips in four but is still good and then drastically deteriorates i think the worst in a series should i do that should we do it that way are we gonna do our rundown i'll do worst the best for me so worst is the order of the phoenix i think it's a poor film uh next up i think i would have to say is the deathly hallows part two i think uh after that i would go for <laughs> deathly hallows part one then it'll be the half-blood prince for me then it would be Goblet of Fire. Then, um, oh no, sorry. Then actually I'd put Chamber of Secrets next. Then Goblet of Fire. Uh, then uh, Philosopher's Stone. And then, of course, uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban at the top. We've got quite a different list. I'm surprised. Think? Uh, my least favourite one is Harry Potter Deathly Hallows Part 2. Right. Then it would probably be uh, Chamber of... No. Then it would probably be Order of the Phoenix. Yep. Then Chamber of Secrets then Goblet of Fire, then Philosopher's Stone. Really? Then uh, Half Blood Prince, and then rounding out with Prince of Azkaban. You nervous you've forgotten what I was. <laughs> yeah, I was like, have I done <laughs> them all, really? And now I realise oh, we gave grades as put, well. Where did I put Deathly Hallows Part well, 7.1? I think that should go somewhere between this three or fourth. Well, three, three or fourth. <laughs> well done. Uh, and we forgot to give a grade to part two. For me, that gets a C. Oh, that gets an F. I hate it. I hate uh, it. It's awful, awful, awful. It's not a very good film. Listeners, I'm sorry that it took such a long time. I hope that was interesting for you. And I hope that's something you were interested in hearing just generally. <laughs> all our thoughts on all Harry Potter films. It's a slightly random thing to do. It sounded like a good idea when we, when we pitched it. And then you when forget. it was doing it, it's quite long. It's a lot of films to talk about. And then they get worse as it goes on. So <laughs> and you realise gradually you're, more you're miserable. You're sort of slowly careening towards a, sh- <laughs> towards a cliff. And it's like, well, okay. Li- <laughs> <laughs> uh, listeners, there we go. That's it for what we've been watching for the foreseeable future. If we find the time to do it again and relaunch it, we would love to do that. And uh, hopefully you'd enjoy hearing it as well. So, you know, don't unsubscribe <laughs> because uh, iTunes will do that for you anyway if no new episodes come out. And there's always the odd chance that in a couple of months uh, we might just drop in an episode or something. Yep, yeah, or we'll do we'll we'll find a way so that it's not goodbye forever to what we've been watching, but for now it's a little bit of a toodaloo. That's right. Thank you so much for listening and getting in touch and just generally being brilliant. We wouldn't do these shows without you guys. Thanks for all your emails and tweets. 
and do email in if you've uh, you've th- had thoughts on anything we've said on this special what we've been watching bumper edition we will read those emails out in the main podcast super baby bros in movie land so it's not wasted absolutely that's right super belly bros at gmail.com at super belly bros on twitter looking forward to hearing your thoughts definitely watch i spy on a night's tale that'll cheer you up whatever your mood and also check out first night and see what bizarre film it is and what was the other one we did star trek for the voyage home social network social network all, all classics all great films <laughs> all great films all right thanks so much listeners have a lovely weekend or week and bye bye-bye for now ta-ra bye scratch that bleep 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 scratch you don't put that in as a blooper. Oh, that's me like helping you with the audio. Yeah, I really needed that. <laughs> since she was young, and she since she was. That's hard to say.